Welcome to the Christian Coach Podcast. Our mission is to serve coaches through conversations so they can lead like Jesus. I'm your host, Chad Simpson, and today's guest is Jeremy Pryor. Jeremy is the co-founder of Family Teams and the author of Family Revision. And I was made aware of, of him and, and some of his content on, a, on my recent coaches retreat, a, a Power 5 uh, coach uh, was shared with us all just uh, some of some of the the content on what it means to be a family team, and um, I was I was just bought in right away. Really really excited to be implementing some of these things in, in my home, and so I just wanted to share with our community um, and, and expose them to to Jeremy so they can follow on social and uh, and get his book, and we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. But um, on this episode, you're going to hear Jeremy share just about what is a family and how we in the West have gotten it wrong. He hits on just the seven day rhythm and and we talk a little bit about just having clarity in the mission. You know, coach, if if you're losing at home, um, really, really uh, dig in here and just uh, open up your heart to some of what Jeremy has to say. And even if you're if you're thriving in the home, uh, this could just be a, an added burst to to what you're doing already. Um, but just a powerful, powerful episode. We, we know how important family and marriage is. Um, and so we are uh, ready to get into this episode right now. Jeremy Pryor, it's uh, it's a gift and a, and a blessing uh, for you to come on on the Christian Coach Podcast. Appreciate you sharing uh, your time with us. Absolutely. Glad, glad to be here, Chad. Yeah, so we, um, we've been on this journey here the past uh, two or three years, just trying to dig into what it really means to be a Christian coach. And uh, this is the first episode I haven't led with with that question. And so we're just going to switch it up and just get right into it. Um, but Jimmy, uh, how does how does being a Jesus follower and a coach, how should that impact how a coach leads their family? Yeah, well, I think that um, the probably my favorite understanding of what fatherhood is. Uh, would be the closest thing that we that we have in our culture today is is the um, the modern coach, um, and I don't think that people think of it that way. I think that we actually have slowly and steadily migrated both the secular and Christian world into thinking about fatherhood much more synonymous with motherhood, like be a very present father, you know, be very emotionally available. Those things are important, um, but we have lost what fatherhood is all about. And if you study scripture and look at the great fathers um, and how God interacted with them, and uh, primarily a man like Abraham, I think that he would find that he has way more in common with the modern day uh, sports coach than he does with the modern father. Um, and so that it has really caused me to try to understand, okay, what, what's the best way for us to recover the definition of fatherhood? And I think it is to uh, really study coaching. I think that that's the fastest route to recovering what biblical fatherhood is all all about. When I when I click on your website on family teams, the very first thing that pops up is uh, every team needs a coach. And so, just for me as as a formal former coach, um, that, that draws me in right from the start. But um, just curious, uh, and we'll get more into what, what exactly family teams is about. But I'm curious if you've seen um, coaches. Who, uh, sports coaches, if they've um, if they've latched on more to some of your concepts, or is there any any hesitancy or, or difficulty in, in applying this? Yeah, for sure, I would say that that there have been uh, some coaches that have really seen 
the connection. And again, I think it's surprising often because there isn't a vision for clarifying the nature of fatherhood um, as it's just one of those things that people tend to not really think deeply about. We've all had a father. We see depictions of fatherhood in media, and there are maybe commands given to fathers in the New Testament, but that hasn't really allowed us to have a comprehensive picture of what this role really entails. And so as coaches, uh, we, we've encouraged coaches to really take all of the things that they've learned from their years of experience in coaching and aim that at their family and their children and their grandchildren and to think about uh, what they're stewarding primarily as a team and uh, that the problem, the fundamental problem with most uh, families is that all of their team members are sitting on the bench waiting for the coach to show up and, and put them in the game. And so I think that when coaches realize this, that this uh, they not only have the, the ability, the skills and the experience to, to raise a very strong family team, but they also have the experience to activate other fathers to begin to coach their families. Um, so that, yeah, I've seen coaches really gra gravitate towards this and, and suddenly have a vision for what fatherhood could look like. Um, now they have to oftentimes work uphill against maybe expectations they have for themselves that their kids have for what it, their role means. Their wives sometimes don't really uh, understand that connection. Their pastors um, and certainly culture in general. Uh, these are all forces that any man who's a coach who wants to bring all of that that uh, experience and those skills into their family, uh, there's going to be a collision because we fundamentally don't think a family is a team. We think it's a collection of individuals. And if it is, then it is inappropriate to coach them. You know, so you it's not appropriate for a math teacher um, to uh, to coach his students like a team. He needs to dial into the individual needs of each student in the class and figure out where they're at and then help them. But they're not they're not really there to sacrifice for the team. The teacher is there to try to help that individual um, as an individual and then move them on to the next class. That is not the same thing as a team or what a coach does. And in some cases, it's the exact opposite set of intuitions. And so some of the things that would cause you to cause to, to really inspire your children to, for example, sacrifice for the goals of the family team. Um, these things are going to they're going to feel deeply inappropriate to a lot of people to bring into the family, not because it is wrong or that there is something damaging, but because we don't believe families are teams. And so, so I think that's a that's actually the fundamental shift that has to happen first. You have to first believe that you are coaching a team. And if you don't believe that, then you're not going to bring those uh, same skills. And again, it, it could it could be damaging to bring um, the kinds of skills you would in, in coaching an aggressive, competitive uh, sports team into a family if the family is just a collection of individuals and that what we're really trying to do is build nests uh, and the nest is there to launch each chicky out into uh, their own individual life if that's what you think a family is then yeah coaching is going to feel inappropriate in the family that's good and I uh, as I first started to hear about this uh, as, a, as a coach I, I gravitated towards it and um, coming for me coming from a, a broken home uh, having every intention of wanting to have a, a godly marriage. Um, I, I got caught up there in my uh, late twenties, just in the, in the coaching grind and wanting to coach the highest levels. And uh, I just heard, heard a stat. Uh, they said for D one coaching, the divorce rates about 70%, maybe a little bit higher. Um, and so just curious um, whether it's a high performance business leader, 
or high performance coach just what what are what are we getting wrong and 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 family well i think we don't we think that the family is a a disposable um unit that is designed to meet individual needs i think that's the way that the modern secular and even the modern christian uh western person thinks about the family and so um, so if, if that's what it is, if it's here for me to get specific individual needs met uh, and that it started when we decided to get married and it ends when the uh, the entity no longer provides those needs for me, then why would I sacrifice for that? Why would I why would I say no to deeply important and fulfilling things that I might want to pursue in my own life? What happens when my marriage is just not fulfilling me as a person? Um, so th- this all is just a natural way to think if if that's what the family is and this is why i think it's so important to figure out what a family is and when you read the scripture family is a is a multi-generational line i mean the, the 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 bible is full of genealogies everywhere god talks about the family he doesn't talk about it as something that suddenly came into existence when you decided to get married for your own individual personal fulfillment that is not what a family is you you are uh th- this baton has been passed from generation to generation has finally reached you and that your job is to lead this team to the next level and that the worst thing you could possibly do is to, as the coach, destroy that team um, by not properly stewarding um, that team for in your generation. You have this one shot, and then you have to pass it on to the next. And so, just like uh, you know, imagine a, a coach who who gets a hold of um, a, a dynastic team that has um, enormous uh, pride, and you know, everyone you you see the history and you see all that all that went into that team, and you. You, t- you tell stories about the coaches from the past that all that they've accomplished. And then that school decides that you're the one to get the baton next. And then you look at this baton and you're like, I'm just here to get my individual needs met, you know? And so uh, it, this is not doing it for me. Like I'm not, I'm not feeling fulfilled. Um, these are just things you don't think of when you've been handed the baton of a dynastic team. And every single one of us have been handed a baton of a dynastic team. Now, it's possible that uh, our immediate father or grandfather has not done a great job of, of coaching and stewarding that opportunity. But every single person listening to this is a part of an unbroken line going all the way back to the beginning of the human race. Um, and so we we need to be aware of what that legacy is. And our job is to build on that legacy and then hand that whole root structure, all of that identity to the next generation. And when you look at cultures, and this is, by the way, the way most cultures think about family, like if you go to the Middle East, for example, this is where I learned it. Um, this is the way that, that that men naturally think about family. And this is why divorce rates tend to be, you know, sub 5% of the population. I mean, it's not because they're more loving. It's not because, you know, that there is some kind of um, magic um, self-control that is being inputted to, to men in these cultures is because they actually think that family is a different thing and when they see their role is different. And so uh, we've adopted a very disposable definition of family that's hyper uh, self-focused. And in that definition, it does make sense to dispose of the family um, when it stops meeting a lot of those individual needs. Why would you sacrifice so much of your potential fulfillment um, on the altar of, of the family when that family exists to give you individual fulfillment? Uh, and so that's why we have to go all the way back to the bedrock of where this problem comes from. And that is, we have forgotten what a family is. We don't understand that a family is a multi-generational team on mission. It was designed that way from Genesis 1. We see the definition given to us in Genesis 1. We see it carried out throughout the rest of the scriptures. 
And somehow we've fumbled the ball in the West as the church. And we, we've, we, instead of defending uh, our understanding that, that the family is essentially multi-generational and team oriented in its, in its design, we've decided to adopt the secular understanding of the family as a, as a nest and as a springboard for individual success. And all of the fruit that we see in the modern destruction of the modern family directly results from that decision. Just for your your history of of going through this, it sounded like there was a moment when you're 23 years old walking through Israel that that all of this kind of began for you. Can you just share a little bit about that moment and and the steps that you made uh, from there? Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in the Seattle area, and uh, this is a place where I would say the experiments of hyper individualism is reaching its zenith. You know, the West Coast tends to have people that have abandoned family and don't have the a huge value for that and have continued to move further and further away and into a more and more individual culture. And they, they tend to, uh, at least in the, in the 90s, when I was growing up, 80s and 90s, they, they, we really pooled in the, in the far west of the country. And so we were, we were I was experiencing and in, in really swimming in a, a, a concentrated version of the hyper-individualism. And, and I certainly bought it because it was this the water I swam in. And so I didn't understand why somebody would want to be a father. It seemed like it was an enormous inconvenience. Like there was a lot that I wanted to accomplish and experience in my life. Maybe it'd be worth sacrificing for one or two kids. I mean, maybe if we designed it right well and there was good schools and things that would make sure that it doesn't get in in my my way. I mean, this is these are all, you know, kind of subconscious thoughts, but this is the reason why so many people that I knew growing up, you know, chose to have dogs instead of children. I mean, if you really have a nurturing instinct and you want to experience that, then why not find the most convenient um, avenue uh, for that? And and so you had in in Seattle, for example, the first city in the country that had more dogs than children. Wow. And so I went from that kind of um, you know environment to going overseas and suddenly finding myself in Jerusalem. And you know, I. <clears throat> The first thing I just noticed um, was how many children there were and how present the men were with the children. I mean, that, that was I, I saw that on the plane. I saw that just walking around the city and <clears throat> kind of culminated one day, a couple of months into my um, semester in Jerusalem, when I actually watched a, a group of men pushing strollers with like and there was maybe three or four fathers with maybe 12 to 15 children <laughs> um, all walking down the street together. So I had never seen anything like this before. I was like, this is really weird. This I've seen a mommy brigade, you know, pushing strollers. I'd not seen a daddy brigade before, um, but here we were, and this was not an uncommon sight in Israel. And so I started just asking the question, like, what do these guys believe about family? I mean, may maybe this, but it was kind of weird because there's, there is a, we're definitely a Western influence within Israel, but they seemed impervious to to that when it came to the topic of fatherhood. So I started asking the question, like, okay, um, from different Jewish fathers, hey, how do you guys see family differently? Like, what, what's, how do you think about it? And where did you get these ideas that it's really having children is, is valuable? And so the answer to that, it kept coming back in one word, Abraham. And, and they really saw Abraham differently. Um, and I was learning to, to read the Bible in Hebrew. And one of the things that happens when you read the Bible in Hebrew is you start to hear the actual um the the actual meaning of the names and you know avram in hebrew means exalted father or meta father is probably one way to think about it so avram exalted father then his his name was changed to abraham avraham which means the father of many nations and so to them they every time you read about abraham you're hearing father 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 and so jesus 
he even, you know, when he refers to Abraham in the parable of the rich man Lazarus, he calls him Father Abraham. And this idea that Abraham is a is sort of a meta father, not necessarily a perfect father, but he's the really he's the archetypal description of how God interacts with fatherhood in the Bible. So, um, and I, I didn't see that at all. I had studied Abraham actually before in seminary, and we only saw Abraham as a man of faith, and we looked at at his example of faith. But I never saw Abraham as a as a model for fatherhood. I always saw that his unique way of approaching fatherhood was really a product of his his culture and his time and history. And so Abraham was obsessed with his multi-generational family and God was interacting with him saying, I'm going to make your descendants like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And Abraham hears these things and and is is very excited. And this is definitely what's motivating him. He's crying out to God for for a son. I mean, these are these are all things to me that were just primitive parts of his cultural uh, heritage and that we've somehow eclipsed these um, basic needs or desires for multi-generational legacy or uh, or for having children in that way and um, but here it was in a culture in the you know in the 20th late 20th century around fathers who still thought this way and so I was like very puzzled by that and again saw that there was just a much um, higher success rate of functional families in this culture and are these things connected and so as I began to wonder, did we did we learn something about family that these Middle Eastern, you know, Arab and Jewish fathers don't know and that someday they're going to realize and wake up that that we've we've actually figured figured out the proper blueprint? Or maybe these guys know something we don't know, right? Every time you're kind of culturally um, experiencing another another group, you you kind of have to ask the question, you know, what are the underlying beliefs and stories that have created this and what's the fruit? And I was just watching the devastation of our beliefs about family and fatherhood in our culture. And I began to really want to do a deep dive theologically, biblically to understand, um, is there something that we've just so somehow discarded um, in our um, in, in our journey in the West? It's like an idea that that existed everywhere, virtually everywhere in the world um, in, in classical cultures that that the family is essentially multi-generational, that is designed to work together, um, and that they, it needs to be led, kind of have visionary leadership at, at its head. Um, <clears throat> so we've really dispensed of that need by by means of, of having a really unusual period of stability and as a culture. And what tends to happen in cultures when there's great instability, people tend to collapse back to family and start to rely on each other and start to function more like a team. And when there's an, what sociologists call the assumption of stability, when you don't think that life is dangerous, then you start to act more and more like an individual. And you don't really need the family. You've got the government providing safety nets. You've got the economy that's fairly, you know, and, and most times in history, if if your kids grew up and acted like your family was a nest and then all took off and restarted their lives in other other cities or other states, that that would be um, a life and death dangerous thing to do, not just for each of your children, but then abandoning the family in that way. The parents would have also put them in, in great danger. Um, that's just not true anymore. Like you can do that. You can you can launch out and your, your kids are not going to starve if they move a few states away and the parents, they're they're probably not going to, you know, necessarily die of neglect. You know, there we have ways of of making sure that people are, you know, at least physically cared for. Um, and this has robbed the family of the basic 
way that we we have really relied on each other um, across um, many many generations, really throughout all of previous history. And and so what I was really interested in was you had a Western, you know, a country that that has a lot of Western influence that's very stable, like Israel. Yet the fathers continued to maintain this very classical uh, vision for fatherhood and family. And then I realized, oh, it's a choice. Like when you when you do, it's not bad that we live in a stable society. That's great. Um, it's not bad that people aren't starving. Um, it does mean though that you do have to choose to continue to function like a family team and rely on your family and think about family multi generationally. You do have to choose that. And, and no one ever told me I got I could choose that. No one ever told me that as a man growing up raising a family in the West that I was going to be very tempted to completely redefine the nature of family, given the fact that we live in a stable society, and that if I wanted to have a family the way it's described in the Bible and live like Abraham, I would have to make a very um, intentional decision to be that kind of a father and to raise that kind of a family. And so what I did as a 23-year-old guy is I started to think, maybe this is a better idea. Maybe maybe our idea is really broken. And I began to think through what, what are the kinds of things I could do to choose to build my family like this, like these, these fathers were building their family. Yeah. What were, what were some of those things as you come back to the United States, what were some of those things that you chose to do there with, with the young family? Um, yeah. Coming back to the U S. Yeah. Yeah. So it did, it did start with a decision that the family is a team. And, um, and one of the things that is very different about a team than a group of individuals is that when you are having children, Every time you have an individual and you're, if you're just a group of individuals, the resources get cut in half or quartered or whatever every time you have one. But if you have a team, every time you add a new member to the team, your team gets stronger. And so my attitude towards having children went from maybe one or two, as long as they don't interfere with you know, my goals, to, oh, how many kids can we, can we have? How early can we have them? Now, if you do this, you know, there's really no going back <laughs> because those kids are coming. And, and this was probably the decision that really, for me, uh, cemented me on this direction. So we ended up having five kids. We couldn't have more than five. Otherwise, we would have had more. But we had five children. And um, that was, you know, at least in the culture I grew up in, a pretty unusually large number. And we had them right away. Um, so that was one thing. Um, then there were, I started to try to understand um, what what are the, the rhythms that would create a multi-generational family culture? Um, and in Israel, it's very clear. Uh, what those what that rhythm is it's it's the sabbath dinner that happens on a friday night like if you it's crazy when you're in jerusalem we live that we've lived there in multiple times now in different seasons and um you know so the sabbath is beginning to come and you see all of the kids just streaming home to their parents house the kids in their 20s and 30s with their with the grandkids we know with their children they're all going to mom and dad's house on the sabbath and you know, we we have this experience in the West of kind of Thanksgiving dinner. We do, you know, maybe Christmas dinner or something. And so we have a couple of times a year where we get to practice this multi-generational meal. And we're so bad at it because we do it, you know, just a few times that it's it's sort of a miserable experience for a lot of people. Um, but in a culture that has practiced a weekly multi-generational meal, they are really good at it. And if you've ever been to an Orthodox Jewish family's uh, Sabbath table, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. It is it is there's actually a skill to it. I, I, I take a group to Israel every year, and last year in January, we were in Jerusalem for the Sabbath, and so I took everybody in our group, about 28 of us, to an Orthodox Jewish family's house for dinner. I did not know this family, but they were graciously uh, making their, their Sabbath table available for, for tour groups, and so we come into their house, and this guy was maybe 35 years old, 
and uh, over the next two hours, the way he led the table blew my mind. I mean, he the way he made people feel at home, he's having people, different parts of the table sing different. And it was just crazy how skilled he was. His his mother was there. He had, you know, his his sister and brother-in-law. There was all kinds of family members that were present, as well as the 28 people that we had on our tour. And it was one of the most magical two hours that I had ever experienced. And it was magical because that father knew exactly how to lead a table. And this is this is this comes from multi-generational skills he saw his father and his grandfather lead table times like this and you know and so it's 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 hard to describe how incredibly life-giving it is to be around a table like that and the bible talks about this exactly in psalm 128 basically you know in the psalm we are told what the good life is it specifically says thus is the man blessed who fears the lord and describes this table and may your wife be like a fruitful vine May your sons be like olive shoots around your table. And so this idea that a grandfather sitting at the head of a, of a table is the, the thing that we're aiming at and that having a weekly experience of, of that kind of uh, culture and that kind of family culture, it creates a totally different kind of family. And so and I remember, so we've practiced uh, Sabbath dinners for almost 20 years as a family. Um, and there was a season where my grandmother actually came to our Sabbath dinner and she was in her 90s. And so she spanned seven generations when she sat at my Sabbath table. So she she could remember three generations, you know, um, that were uh, before her. And she was seeing four generations under her. And uh, and so having this experience, this is the reason why uh, older people need to live along, because there, there's a, there needs to be an arena for them to tell stories and to create that kind of uh, bridge that continuity between generations but there's no there's no arena for that in our modern culture except for maybe that thanksgiving dinner and so having that weekly experience and that doesn't, that doesn't have to be a sabbath dinner you could just say we're going to do a weekly multi-generational meal uh, but but i do think that if you want to get this skill really well developed the place to go is to understand how jewish families have been stewarding the sabbath uh kickoff dinner for so many thousands of years they're so skilled at it. And so I, I just, I, I spend a lot of time studying how that works and how to bring that into my family. And it does it. You will not be able to stop a multi-generational family from starting if you practice this, but it does take some time and some skill to get it right. Um, yeah. So you're 20 years into this, I, I'm six weeks and, uh, our, our four-year-old boy asks, uh, almost every night and Hey, can we bring the candle out like uh, each night at dinner? And so he's, He's already bought in and, and loving it. Um, but are there any other uh, weekly rhythms just for for young families or, or fathers that you would that you would uh, highly recommend? Because I've heard you say that the Sabbath is the first place to go. And and feel like with John Mark Comer's book, uh, Ruthless Elimination Hurry, I think that's it's coming into light a little bit more. This this idea of taking a 24 hour uh, day to Sabbath. But any other weekly rhythms that you guys have found helpful? Yeah, I think I think that it's really good to think about crafting an ideal family week. Um, and so the we tend to, in our culture, set goals. And um, and that's a powerful tool, but sometimes it works too well. Because if you just set goals, then oftentimes whatever you're aiming at, you've put into such clear focus that if there's something you're not aiming at, then it, it can get neglected. Um, and so what I like to do is, is set goals and then craft those goals into rhythms where I actually have to face the time trade-off 
because children and family culture tend to be challenging to create, you know, very hard driving goals around. So you have to really protect time in order to do this well. And so we have our, our ideal week um, designed and we spend a lot of time. We have a annual family summit every year where the primary thing we're trying to work through is, is our uh, weekly rhythm sufficiently well designed to meet all the needs of the family. And, uh, and that includes the hard driving things we're doing in terms of, you know, businesses and uh, education, as well as, as just the kind of culture we want to create as a family. So, um, so there, some of the rhythms we, we do on a weekly basis, my, my dad leads this um, thing called uh, game night with Papa. So I go off on a date night with April and all the kids, um, my dad comes over and, and leads a, like a board game night that Saturday night, um, Sunday night, we do um, a worship uh, gathering with our family. Um, and so that's really important time for, for our family to experience that. We do a Sunday morning um, meeting every week um, with our, everyone who's in our household. Uh, we do one-on-ones that we literally assign um, to everyone in the family. So the kids and April and I uh, also get assigned a, a sort of a one-on-one partner and spend an hour just really dialing, going deep, just to make sure that we are taking the time to really dial into the heart of each of our kids. Um, so we have a media night on Wednesday night where we watch stories together. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of rhythms, including the Sabbath that we've just learned are so life-giving um, or just a nutrient that's really being neglected in our family that we find that we need a rhythm to overcome the um, the passivity. You know, this is the sin of Adam is that we learn in Genesis is um, that men are going to struggle with abdicating the responsibility to be active leaders of their families. And this is what happened in the garden when Adam allowed that snake in and ate the ate the fruit with with his wife. And I think that we have to very actively confront our own passivity. And so the the tool I always want to give fathers to do this is the rhythm. If you take control of the seven day rhythm, you know how are you crafting that? And one of the things that's really challenging for 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 teams and coaches is that you know you you can imagine a coach when you are standing in front of your team. And you're telling the guys, okay, this is what it takes to win. We're going to need to do these four practices a week. We're going to play games on this day. And, um, you know, people don't uh, raise their hand and say, oh, coach, sorry, my family actually does something on each of those nights. So I'm only going to be able to make one practice. And, you know, like, no, you, you, if you're, if you're going to be on the team, you have to submit to, um, to the regiment that the coach is designing for the team, or, you know, it's just not fair to the other players. Um, and I think that it's really important to understand that, that the family is a team and as the coach, you need to design that rhythm. You need to decide what are the practices we're doing together and what, what are those times? And you got to fill in those slots proactively, not passively wait for that to happen. Um, you have to decide what those are. And sometimes they do, those do collide with what a pastor wants or coach wants or teacher wants, or, you know, and so that you have to negotiate those things and decide, you know, the, what, these are real trade-offs and the only way to face those trade-offs properly is by looking at, at at something like the week itself and designing that uh, that that schedule so that you are making sure that your team is getting all the proper time it needs to become the kind of team God wants it to be. So that's uh, I would say that that's part of being taking all the things you've learned as a coach and and really aiming that, those things at your family. 
Yeah, I love that. And just to think about some of the skills of of a coach, you know, they're they're great at scheduling, they're great at building culture. They they have all of these these tools. What about can you just give advice for for the coach that that maybe they are facing a little resistance? So like, all right, I, I want to lead this fan family. I don't want to be passive, but maybe it's a spouse, maybe it is the the coaching grind of of uh, maybe they're playing matches or, or games on Friday and Sundays, like like the schedule might fight against them. But what advice might you give as they're trying to step into this and and lead boldly? Yeah, well, I, I think I think that what makes sports intoxicating is the clarity about of mission. It's so clear when you've achieved it. I think this gets men really excited, and this is what makes family really challenging because what is the mission? What when do I score? When did we win the championship? When is the trophy handed out? Who are we competing against? And so. In order for you to allow family to be a team, you actually have to answer those questions. Like, what what are we aiming at? What is the mission of this family? Right. So you have to design that. There was a there's a really cool story that Donald Miller tells in one of his books um, about this 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 guy. It's this dad. He said he was having coffee with him, and his dad's name was Jason, and and his, he's talking to him. The um, Donald's asking, okay, how, how's it going? What's going on in your life? And he said, well, not too great. Like my, my daughter, she's really into this guy who's, um, you know, we don't think is, is really healthy for her, but you know, she won't listen to us. And yeah, I'm just really confused about how to help my, my daughter. I think she might be doing drugs. And, um, Donald says, wow, man, sounds like your daughter is living a really bad story. He's like, what? Well, it sounds like your, your daughter's like a care, like a playing the role of a character in a story. And, it's not it's not a good a good character she needs a different story so he's like huh so jason goes home starts thinking about this and he's like how could i catch my daughter up into a different story and i think he has to face this problem of we have nothing to aim at like we have no this team has no has has no uh no definition of of its of its goal and so he starts looking around for something to to really aim at and and finds this orphanage in mexico that's about to close down and it's going to cause all kinds of problems for these kids and so he he holds his first family meeting you know and gets his daughter and his wife and he's like guys i discovered that this orphanage in mexico is about to go under and all they need is twenty thousand dollars and we can together rescue this orphanage and both his wife and daughter are like what like why would we do that like what, where does this come from and they both really kind of gave him a lot of kind of negative <laughs> reaction He's just like, oh man. And so he's discouraged. Anyway, about a day later, or so the daughter comes back to him and says, Hey, dad, I've been really thinking about, you know, that orphanage you described. And I have some ideas for how we might be able to raise that money. And and so his wife comes back and she's also interested in the vision. And, and so they start working together and they start like planning. Okay, we can even plan a trip. Let's do these, these fundraisers. Anyway, a week later, he's having coffee again with Donald. And um, he's like, Hey, how's how's your daughter doing? And Jason says, man, my daughter's doing a lot better. She broke up with her boyfriend. She's like, we're working together as a family to, to do this, this mission, uh, to rescue this orphanage. I, my daughter seems like a different character in the story. And that's the power of a father. Cause he's the only one that can really do that. The, your family's designed for the father to, to define what that vision is. And, and the, uh, rest of the family is really designed to, to follow that leadership. And just like you, just how devastating it would be for the head coach of a team to abdicate that completely and not to throw out any vision to his to his his team or any clarity around what they're trying to achieve as a team. 
Um, you you are you're in that seat, like that's what that's that, and that is almost technically what the Bible describes fatherhood as. Like I, this is why I think it's really important. That we hear the word father in our culture. We think of somebody who sires a child. That is not the way the Bible describes fatherhood. Fatherhood itself is about what we're describing as a coach. Abraham was called a father before he ha even had children because he was leading his household. And we learn in Genesis 13 that he had 318 trained members of his household. So he was he was his coach. He was constantly training uh, this household in order to achieve the goals of the family. And and so th this is this is the essence of fatherhood. And this is, you know, again, it's it's it comes back to how what you think a family is and and uh if you understand that this is the essence of what a family is that in genesis 1 when we got first created the first family he gave the family a, a multi-generational mission that only a team could accomplish be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it rule these are things that they couldn't be fruitful or multiply without each other they couldn't they couldn't fill and subdue the world without the multi-generational aspect of family and ruling was their ultimate aim. Uh, ultimately, they were to establish a household, a ruling household. And so this, this, this is what Abraham was really skilled at. He was, he, you know, God gave fam the family this mission, but fortunately, he also gave us an amazing example of someone living out that mission. Not a perfect man, but but one who was really going for it um, as a as a meta father, exalted father, Abraham. So so I think I think we just we need to really get a hold of the biblical understanding and, and really stop adopting these very destructive ideas we're getting from the culture about family and fatherhood. That's really good. And uh, just the clarity of mission is, is what you said at the beginning. I, I love that. And in your book, Family Revision, you know, you, you dig deeper into that on, uh, you know, the, the big picture of we're here to make disciples of all nations, but also how to find that that personal family mission. So we'll we'll put that in the show notes and, and point everyone towards your website. And um, just a personal thank you for for all your hours spent in research and in study and in um, and, and yeah, and writing the book, it's been a blessing to my family already and, and, uh, and the generations to follow. So thank you. And we just like to, um, end in a time of prayer. So is there anything that we can be praying uh, with your family about? Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. Well, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're in a really, uh, you know, interesting transition as a family because our kids are becoming adults and are, you know, uh, jumping into trying to decide what this looks like. So I just pray for, yeah, our family that as you know, we have our first grandson, which has been incredibly awesome. Um, just to be getting to experience that identity, you know, that's, that's so new for us. Uh, but yeah, just a protection guidance over uh, each of my kids as they're entering into this season and, and clarity from the Lord about, you know, the wisdom we're going to need to know how to lead a family in this season. It'd be great. Yeah. For sure. Let's let's pray right now. Lord, uh, thank you, Lord. Thank you just for this day. Uh, thanks for the work that you did on the cross for us, God. And um, thanks, God, just for for Jeremy and, and April, their their family, for their their ministry, uh, for the work that you've done in them and the work you're going to do. And just pray in this new season as being uh, first time grandparents and um, just uh, parenting this this next stage of life. Just give them wisdom from above and just um protect them, protect their children and continue to just put your hand and, and blessing on their family. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' most powerful name. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. And uh, yeah, just really appreciative and, and grateful just for Jeremy to share his time with us, uh, for him to be a blessing and speak life and in, to me and for the, us to be able to share that with with our uh, coaching community. Um, but like I said, you, you have to uh, check out his book. Um, I know I, I really was um, struggling as as a as a coach uh, in, in marriage and pursuing uh, my family well and so I know it's it's an area that many coaches want to do well at um, but just we 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 fail many times and so uh, I'm just going to share a quote from his book um, that really struck me and, and what I was uh, living in but he, he said uh, one father is providing for and enjoying his family as one of many detached elements that make up his individual life the other father is building his family as the primary identity through which he builds a meaningful life. And, you know, just curious if, if there was a scoreboard or, or results page for family, um, you know, Monday morning after the weekend, I do think that a lot of uh, parents and, and fathers would, would do things differently, but really it, it can go unseen. Um, n- nobody really sees what's going on, on in the home. So um, just want to encourage you, coach, dig in, dig in, uh, listen to the family team's podcast, dig into some of the content that Jeremy and his team are putting together. Um, and yeah, we just want to encourage you that, that it can be done. You can you can win as a coach and you can win in the home. Uh, it's doable. So don't give up. Keep keep uh, keep going, coach. But we uh, we end every episode in the same way. We, we believe with all of our heart. And just remember, coach, that the mission field is right where you're at. Thank you.